high-income assets you might never have thought of, what you're really paying for with your fund charge, and top-performing income funds. Welcome to the Personal Finance Podcast with me, Kate Bearley. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Emma Adjaman, personal finance writer, and Jason Hollins, Managing Director at Tilney Group. So first, income without high risk. It's the holy grail of investing for many. And Emma has been looking at a whole host of income assets and funds which could deliver you just that. Um, All of them are in areas which you might never have thought of too. So Emma, you've been looking at what we call alternative income, haven't you? Um, So what defines alternative income and and what kind of areas have you looked into? Um, Basically, alternative income can be thought of as income you receive from asset classes outside the obvious equities or bonds. Um, and as you mentioned, there are a whole host of, of areas. I've only looked at three in this article for them. You know, we've only got so much space. Um, but they are property, infrastructure and renewable energy. And um, in some areas, this, these are issues that investors haven't really thought about as paying good income. So this is an area to consider. OK. And w- what kind of yields are we talking about, generally speaking? Um, well, this is one of the main attractions for this area. So, for example... The average UK direct property trust is yielding about 4.5%, um, which is quite high. Um, infrastructure trust yields around 4.8%, and renewable energy trusts are even higher at 5.7%. Okay, so that is pretty high. Um, so let's start with property. Um, so people are familiar with the idea of investing in property funds, but the ones you've looked at are not the obvious, are they? So what kind of specialist property funds have you been looking at? Yeah, so as you say, um, most people are familiar with well-known commercial property trusts where you're investing in things like office blocks or shopping centres. But these new breed or specialist property trusts are sort of making money in areas such as student accommodation, care homes and warehouses. Okay, so let's take the uh, warehouses or or they're sometimes called big boxes, aren't Mm. they? Take that first. So, So what are big boxes and why is it such a kind of growing area? Well, big boxes are basically huge warehouses um, that online retailers um, use to store their goods before sending them out to customers. And we all know, you know, the growth of internet shopping doesn't seem to be um, turning off in any way. So um, there's huge demand for these spaces and um, trust that invest in them can get a good income from that. Okay, and and which one have you looked at there? Yeah, so looked at Tritax Big Box REIT. Um, which is, you know, one of the was the first one to launch in this area, and its assets have increased nine hundred and seventy nine percent from its launch in twenty thirteen, from two hundred million pounds to two more than two billions today. Okay, wow, that's pretty impressive. And you also talk about student property, don't you? Mm-hmm. And I assume that these aren't the kind of rat infested halls that we <laughs> uh, that some of us might have stayed in at university. Um, no, quite the contrary. Um, a very different experience. And often these buildings are, you know, developed for wealthy overseas students. Um, so they tend to be new, very modern, very luxury in some cases. Okay. Um, and what are the benefits of these kind of property funds? And why, why are the yields so high? And how sustainable are those dividends? Well, when they, you know, if you think about student accommodation, um, the UK is a really attractive destination for overseas students, particularly London. And so demand is high from that side of things. And also you've got limited supply. Um, so there's potential for high grain income because you've got the ability to charge high rents. OK. Um, so, Jason, which of these property funds specifically comes with the biggest risk, do you think? Um, yeah, there, there are so many of these um, niche vehicles. Um, I think the thing to be careful of is also 
you know, whether they, that these investment companies are using high levels of gearing. So for most, for most investors, actually, we would still, you know, I still, still suggest using a more conventional commercial property investment company. Uh, UK Commercial Property Trust um, looks um, uh, pretty uh, reasonable at the moment. It's only at a 1.2% premium and it has a 4.1% yield. Um, so, you know, I would still focus on those types of um, uh, more broader commercial property trusts as opposed to, the, to those that are investing in a, in a sort of niche subsector of, of the property universe. Okay. And, I mean, just talking of those broad commercial property trusts, they obviously had major issues um, when the when the open-ended funds suffered uh, last year and were gated. Um, the trusts were obviously affected by that sentiment too. Um were, they, were these niche kind of commercial, were these niche property vehicles affected as well? Well, there's little, there's very little trading in the uh, in the um, secondary market of it because these are ten, tend to be quite small um, uh, issues. So yes, we did see in the in the in the days immediately following the EU referendum that there was some panic by investors and they began selling um, both property investment companies. And open-ended funds, and that meant the investment companies um, obviously moved quite quickly to very big discounts NAV. Um, but you know, um, these areas are all trading back at premiums again. So, so those that would that on reflection was actually a buying opportunity um, to get into some of these vehicles that you know do typically trade at um, quite big premiums. But it tended to be the more widely held, more conventional property investment companies that um, got squeezed. Okay, um, let, let's move on from property. And Emma, let's talk about infrastructure, which is another area that you've looked at. Um, what are these kind of funds and what are their main benefits? Well, infrastructure um, has a range of assets. For example, it can include the construction, operation of schools, hospitals, transport, any kind of infrastructure projects. Um, traditionally, many of the projects used a public-private partnership model, PPP, which meant they also benefited from very secure government-backed income streams. Okay, um, and what's an example of a fund in this area then? Um, one of the examples is GCP Infrastructure, um, and actually it's a little bit different because it only focuses on investments in UK infrastructure debt. So it includes assets um, such as PPP projects, but also solar and wind generation, um, and it has the highest dividend yield in the sector of around 6%. Okay, um, and these uh, tend to be inflation-linked, don't they, some of these? Yes, that's right, because um, many of the underlying projects um, will have infl inflation linkage to the income streams, so that's one of the key attractions of this area, that as inflation goes up, um, you, you know, your income's also going to go up. Okay, interesting. Um, what about the key risks, then? Well, as Jason was saying, one of the key risks is that because these assets are perceived as relatively low risk, but where they've got such a high... Um, yields attached to them, they're tending to be trading on very high premiums. So GCP infrastructure, for example, is trading on a premium of around 15%. Um, and that obviously can be a potential uh, worry for investors if you know they buy at the top of the market and later on, um, for some reason, some of these premiums fall. Another reason, another kind of issue to be concerned about is that some of the infrastructure trusts are struggling to find um, PPP assets at a good price as um, the amount of PPP projects available has fallen 
um, but demand is still sky high, so everything's just getting more expensive. Okay, interesting. And Jason, we do hear that interest rate rises could affect these kind of funds. Why? Why is that? Uh, well, because they are because yield is such an important element of the overall return profile, and obviously, if yields start to rise both on interest rates and then on you know more mainstream investments like government bonds or corporate bonds then clearly um, the market reprices other income assets. So there is a sensitivity there. Although it is fair to say uh, in the area of property, for example, property uh, in many ways, or commercial property as opposed to residential property, has both fixed income and equity-like characteristics. So, so by that, what I mean is that on the one hand, rising interest rates um, you know, might um, uh, have a negative impact um, are, uh, for, for yield-based investments like a property trust. But equally, um, they are very sensitive to um, uh, economic um, strengthening. So in an environment where rates start to rise, that's usually an environment actually where the economy is picking up quite strongly and growth is picking up. So, so on the one hand, you, know, you could argue that a rate, rating, rising rate environment is a negative, but actually... That would likely happen in an environment where the economy is picking up, where uh, rents can therefore rise um, uh, because actually um, occupancy rates are high. So actually, I think you know a, pro- a commercial property has the ability to absorb you know modest rate rises. Um, uh, if you saw an environment of you know very sharp interest rate rises, that that would be a different kettle of fish. But I think you know very few people are would expect that. Okay, so kind of a mixed picture there. And Emma, the final area that we'll have a look at here is renewable energy. Mm. Um, It's similar to infrastructure, I would assume. And why do these generate such good income streams? Um, They are similar in some senses because they receive quite a lot of their um, income streams from government subsidies. So, for example, um, these trusts will typically invest in wind farms and solar farms. Um, Although one of them also um, invests in waste management And the whole point of of the projects they have is power generation, um, for which they will receive some government income through subsidies. But they also receive um, part of their income, you know, based on the on the price of power. And that's one of the risks with these areas, because that's actually quite that can be quite variable. Okay, And and I mean, just how dependent are these on subsidies? Is that a risk, too? Um, Yes. I mean, to some extent, it is a risk. Um, It's various of that. Different kind of ass, uh, different kind of trusts have um, greater or less exposure depending on the kind of areas they invest in. So it, it, it does make sense for investors to kind of like look into the detail of how their trusts um, invest and how much exposure they have to subsidies. But in general, if subsidy levels of you know go down, these trusts' ability to generate the income that they ha- are able to will be affected. Okay, and and what are the yields and the premiums like on these kind of trusts then? They're also trading at very high premiums because the yield is very high. Um, so on average, the sector is yielding about 5.7%. Um, and the average premium is 10.2%. But having said that, that's lower than the other broader infrastructure trust, which, as we say, is around 12.5%. Right. So, I mean, these are high premiums, aren't they, Jason? Um, do you think it's, well, when is it worth paying that kind of premium for these kind of funds is it is it ever worth it, or or should you wait for them to come down? I think that you know personally, I would be reluctant to pay pay double digit premiums. Um, uh, but I think you know the opportunity comes when these types of vehicles do 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 fundraising, and 
certainly the, the sort of broader infrastructure investment companies have been through a round of um, fundraising, you know, in recent months. So I think, you know, if you're thinking of investing in these areas, it's a question of, you know, uh, keeping an eye on when they're going to do further fundraisers and trying to get in at that point in time. Okay. Um, but I'd be reluctant to pay double-digit pre- premiums, um, you know, for, for these types of income streams. Yeah, I mean, to what extent do you think income investors do need to look further afield and and kind of move away from just, uh, for example, UK equity income and bonds? I mean, I, I, I think well, they definitely need to do that. You know, uh, historically, private investors in the UK have been big fans and big buyers of UK equity income funds with good reason because, you know, um, uh, the UK has historically been a really high-yielding market. Um, but I think, you know, um, uh, it's worthwhile bearing in mind that actually the UK uh, outlook for UK dividends is facing some headwinds at the moment. Payout rates, are, you know, are, are extremely high. Last year, around about 89% of um, UK companies' uh, earnings were distributed as dividends. And that, that means in, inevitably that there's very limited headroom for further significant dividend growth unless profits really start to motor. But I think, you know, key parts of the UK dividend pool, you know, come from areas like oil and gas. Um, you know, something that is, that is singularly probably the biggest source of overall dividends in the UK. And as you know, the energy prices have been very volatile. Um, there were hopes and expectations that, um, that uh, the oil price would begin to pick up. Um, but obviously, more recently, um, uh, it's weakened again. Yeah, so so there is certainly a need to kind of move away from things that we might have previously thought of as kind of safer ports for income, basically. If you look, if you look over the last decade, um, typically around two thirds of the entire UK uh, dividend pot has come from fifteen companies. And around about, um, you know, over a third of that actually comes from the five biggest companies, you know. And so you do see most bog standard UK equity income funds, you know, often have the, the, the same old names in their top 10 holdings, which would include the banks like HBC and Lloyd's, would include Royal Dutch Shell and BP, you know, might have the pharmaceutical giants like um, uh, Glaxo in there. So, you know, if you've been buying these um, steadily over many years, you've probably got a lot of exposure to actually the dividend income of quite a small cluster of companies. So it does, I think, make sense to look further afield. Um, that means both perhaps looking at smaller company income funds, but also looking at, at, at overseas equity markets and maybe having a little bit of exposure to some of these more alternative uh, income uh, vehicles. Okay, well, we'll actually come back to to some of those points um, a bit later, but now we're going to move on and look at fund investment charges and just what you get for your money. I've been looking at why some funds cost so much more than others and what's inside the ongoing charge. So, Jason, generally speaking, as an investor, what do you have to pay when you buy funds? Okay, well, the the, the costs when you buy a fund are, well, first of all, um, the cost of either a broker or a platform or advisor who you um, uh, purchase it through. That's an important part of the total cost of purchasing. Um, but then obviously a fund um, running cost will include the annual management charge, which is the percentage-based fee typically that the fund company will um, charge investors for running the fund. But on top of that, there are other costs that um, uh, 
to be included. Um, and that's usually expressed as a formula called the OCF, the ongoing cost formula. And those um, additional costs beyond the annual management fee uh, represent things like perhaps, you know, research that's built against the fund, um, certain administrative costs or auditing costs. And those are sort of fixed in nature. Uh, therefore, you know, bigger funds tend to see, they, they tend to make less um, of an overall influence on very big funds. Um, but obviously on a small fund, they can actually make up um, quite a bit of extra costs. Now, these days, uh, if you bought an equity fund, 0.75% uh, is, is very much the sort of standard annual management charge. But those additional costs uh, that I spoke about might actually increase the overall cost to around about 0.85%. But it can vary um, uh, significantly depending on the size of a fund or indeed whether it's operating in a very specialist area. Okay. Now, I've had a look at the sectors, um, the fund sectors that are the cheapest and most expensive. And when looking at open-ended funds, I found that the cheapest ones uh, by OCF, by average OCF, were short-term money market funds and bond funds. Um, so those all range between 0.55% to 0.24%. So does that surprise you, or is that exactly what you'd expect to see? That's exactly what I would e expect because um, those types of um, markets um, are less complicated. Um, uh, the uh, cost of operating of uh, a fund manager operating those markets are going to be lower, and the return profile is lower. So charges make an even bigger difference on the um, overall outcome. So no, you would expect cash funds uh, and money market funds to have very very low costs. Bond funds are typically um, uh, uh, cheaper than um, equity funds. Uh, but obviously, once you're in the world of equity funds, um, uh, uh, costs will often be higher if they're operating in niche markets or specialist markets. Yeah, Absolute return funds can have high fees because often they will include a performance fee structure. But the most expensive um, category overall would be fund of funds. Um, because you've got the cost of the fund of funds and then obviously the cost of the underlying funds that they're invested in. So essentially you're paying two layers of fund costs. Okay. And yet, in fact, when I looked at the most expensive active funds, um, in fact, they were in these specialist areas, for example, specialist property um, or Asia-Pacific property. So, so that does kind of bear that out. Um, but in fact, the OCF is not the end of it, is it, in terms of the charges you pay as an investor? No, and this has been a hot area of debate, and it's something actually the SBA, the UK regulator, is doing further work on. Uh, because that OCF, while it includes the, the, the charge that the fund manager makes for running the money and other sort of administrative expenses, the key bit that isn't included that in that are the sort of trading costs that a fund will inevitably incur. So the, the, the dealing fees that they will incur when they buy or sell shares. And, uh, uh, and, and so... What the FCA is working on is a new uh, uh, formula for um, giving a, a very transparent view of all costs. And the problem with um, including uh, trading fees is, of course, um, they can depend, you know, on you know just how busy the fund manager has chosen to be, give over a particular time period. Uh, so it's quite a hard thing to to, to predict um, because there may be an environment where they find they need to do a lot of dealing. Um, but they may have other years where actually um, the approach is very low, low turnover one because they're, they're satisfied with the holdings that they have. Um, but there is going to be um, more to come on that. 
Yeah, and in fact, one thing I noticed when doing this research was just how difficult it is to find out um, exactly what is in ongoing charge and what isn't. And research fees is an interesting one here. Some fund houses uh, include them in their ongoing charge and, and some don't. Um, and in fact, we have had several companies, haven't we, uh, split out their research fees um, and kind of take them on the chin and not charge those to investors anymore. Is that something that you think is needs... Is that something that you think is beneficial? Um, do you think there's a kind of lack of transparency there? Well, I think, I think you know, there's, there's always room for more transparency on my niche. Um, I suspect you know, that the granularity of this is hugely interesting to a very small number of people. Um, but most investors really just want to know well, what's the overall cost time you know, that they're paying rather than um, you know, seeing line by line um, uh, you know, how that money is, is being spent. Um, you're right, there are a number of um, firms have taken the decision that they will centrally pay for all their investment research rather than um, you know, bill it against the particular funds that they run. And I expect you'll probably see more of that happening because um, uh, uh, once you know, some players decide to, to, to do it, um, um, you know, it shines a spotlight on those who, who are continuing to, to book those costs against particular funds. Okay. Um, well, for a full breakdown of what's in your OCF and, and the cheapest and most expensive funds, um, take a look at the magazine this week. Uh, but finally, we're going to round up with income again. Um, and Emma's been looking this week at private wealth manager San Lam's latest roundup of the top performing UK equity income funds. Uh, so, Emma, what are the top performing funds this year and how does that compare um, to the last study? Well, the funds with large weightings to small and mid caps performed very strongly in this edition with the top three funds all having a lot in this area. So number one was CF Mitten UK Multi-Cup Income Fund, um, which has actually maintained its first place since the last survey in February. It has 35% in AIM listed stocks, 18% in FTSE 250 companies, and 14% in FTSE small cap. Um, number two was Slater Income Fund, which also has more than half of its portfolio in smaller micro cap you know, companies. It came second up from sixth last time, so an improvement there. And the fund that came third was MI Shelverton UK Equity Income Fund, which has a whopping 75% in smaller micro cap you know, f companies. So it just shows how much these companies, these funds rather, have done very well um, off the back of their small mid cap exposure. Yeah. Um, Jason, why, what's the reason for that? Why have smaller companies been doing so well this year in income terms? Well, um, the, the underlying earnings growth has been um, much stronger, not not just over the last 12 months, but actually over the sort of the full five-year period that I think the study, um, you know, looks at when it's when it's compiling its rankings. So, you know, smaller companies and mid-caps have, have um, actually um, uh, uh, had stronger earnings growth than the you know big, large FTSE 100 companies. Um, despite the fact that actually, of course, a very sort of common um, theme over the last year since the Brexit vote um, has been a sort of preference by many investors to move towards large companies because they have those sort of international earnings. But on a steady currency basis, actually, both smaller companies and mid-caps have um, outperformed. Okay, interesting. And Emma, does that mean that the converse is true and that funds with a weighting to large caps have underperformed? Yes, in general, they have lagged behind those that had exposure to smaller mid-caps. And as Jason's been saying, you know, these have done very well in recent times. Um, so, for example, the worst fund 
um, which was the biggest fall in the survey, was Newton UK Income Fund. Um, and it slumped from the sort of middling list to the list to consistent poor performance. And it has almost 60% in giant sized companies and 23% in sort of large caps. Um, so that that's an example as, as you know, of a fund with a lot of exposure to large caps that has lagged. Okay, interesting. Uh, Jason, we tend to think of smaller companies as being higher risk, don't we? Do you think that is the case or is there a bit of a misconception there? I think there's a bit of a misconception there. Um, you know, there are many different ways that you can measure risk. What, one, you know, often used measure is volatility. Actually, you know, in recent years, the sort of, you know, annual rate of volatility has actually been lower for smaller companies than it has been for the FTSE 100. Part of that is undoubtedly driven by the fact that we've seen a lot of volatility, you know, in the sort of commodity and energy sector because, because underlying, you know, oil, gas and commodity prices have been so volatile. Um, but, you know, often, you know, very large businesses, um, you know, can be quite complex because they operate over so many jurisdictions and, and are, are quite complex. Whereas actually, um, there's no reason in itself why a small business um, should be higher, ri higher risk. They are, of course, often less liquid. Um, so I think it really depends on the on the uh, you know on the qualities of an individual of each individual company. Okay. One fear I think you know that we've seen over the last years a lot of people lot of people worrying about um, uh, smaller companies being more exposed to the domestic UK economy, and um, you know what what might that mean if we have a difficult Brexit process. Okay, well, thanks very much. I think that's all we've got time for this week. So um, for more on all of those income funds, uh, pick up the magazine this week and otherwise catch us again next week.